Hillary's on podcasting. That's the cold open. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, graphic designer for the Record Store Day Deluxe Limited Edition 10-Year Anniversary Commemorative Box Set slash 3D Puzzle of the seminal and long out-of-print Jesse Winchester Odd Future mashup album, Let the Rough Side Swag. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow, you came strong this week, Sean. That's right. I'm back, baby. Don't call it a comeback. Oof, I'm just gonna let this one go in your shadow, but I'm co-host Jeremy, and this album has inspired me to create a a southern-flared Canadian dish, Nashville hot poutine. Ooh, (laughs) I would eat that. Yeah, it sounds kind of good, actually. I would fuck that up, not gonna lie. (laughs) Little Canadian slash Southern mashup dish. Yeah. Just give me a bag of all-dressed chips and we're good to go. Well, I am co-host Peter Cook. And what I've learned over the course of 131 episodes of I'd Buy That for a Dollar is that it takes more than a microphone and a mic stand to make a conversation a podcast. Wisdom, straight from Peter, man. Yeah, it takes Jeremy Ruggles working his magic. Oh, true. (laughs) That's what it takes. Well, that's a reference to one of the songs on the record that I brought today, although we're not going to be featuring that song, so no further explanation (laughs) there. (laughs) Cool, cool, cool. (laughs) But it is Jesse Winchester's 1976 release on the Bearsville label. Let the rough side drag. And I think let's just get right into it. Can you tell me what that means first before we get into it? Oh my goodness. I meant to look this up because it is, it means something. And I was never knew what it meant. And Sean, did you uh, dive into that? Yeah, I did a little bit. And I'm trying to think of the description that I had in my head previous to recording. Now that I'm on the spot. Um... (laughs) Let the rough side drag. I guess it's like it's kind of similar to uh, don't sweat the small stuff kind of thing. Like shit's happening, but don't focus on it. Just look on the bright side. Ah, because it's let the rough side drag. Let the smooth side shine. Mm. And I I feel like that kind of plays into the Jesse Winchester life story that we will begin to illuminate as we go on. Well, there you go, Sean. Thank you for being on the spot with that. No problem. Shawnee on the spot. Shawnee on the spot. <laughs> That's what they call me. Well, the first song that I would like to feature is Blow On Chilly Wind, side A, track six. They can talk and talk and talk about us. 
to my knowledge of Jesse Winchester because that song made me think about how I was wrong about Jesse Winchester. <laughs> oh, like a preconceived notion you had? Yes, I hadn't really listened to Jesse Winchester much. I just dismissed him as he's one of those songwriter guys who puts out like boring albums himself, but like writes good songs for other people. But I was wrong. I just hadn't uh, given him his propers. And I think listening to that song again right there, I was reminded, like, these arrangements are really good. And, like, he's got the bass of a good song, and then it's not boringly arranged as I feel like a lot of the... There's, like, an archetype in my mind that I kind of lumped him into of, like, really boring straight ahead recorded versions of songs but he doesn't fit that archetype yeah i suppose maybe you're thinking like a formerly discussed songwriter like i'm just gonna go for jimmy webb who's better known for other people performing his songs and a lot of his solo recordings aren't very renowned because he's not a very great singer yeah but no that's not the case with jesse winchester he he makes some great albums on top of writing some great songs. He can uh, he can play guitar, keyboard, and flute. That was him playing the flute on the song we just listened to. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. And that was one of three songs on this album that were covered by Jonathan Edwards on his 1977 album, Sailboat, which would have just been the year after this. So <laughs> Jonathan Edwards must have been also, we formally talked about on the show he must have been a big fan of this album if he was featuring three songs on his next album it was also covered by nicolette 
Larson, who our listeners may know for her version of Neil Young's Lot of Love, It's Gonna Take a Lot of Love, and probably someone that we will feature on a future episode. Jesse Winchester, very well-known as a songwriter and people covering his material. So I can see why you might have had that preconceived notion, Jeremy. True. And I don't feel like I've ever heard of people being like, oh, you got to check out this Jesse Winchester album. Nobody said that to me before this. <laughs> well, that's why we're here, isn't it? Yeah, we're saying it, it is to why you. we're here. Saying it to you and our listeners now. Check out this Jesse Winchester album and probably anyone you pick you can find. Honestly, I I mean, I don't really know his stuff past the 70s, but everything that I do know, it's just fantastic songwriting and arrangements too you know i actually listened to a handful of songs from his last two records love filling station from 2009 and a reasonable amount of trouble from 2014 and they're shockingly good him as like an older kind of slightly rough voice singer does his songs perfectly and he still just has this masterful touch and sense of dynamic with his singing and playing um he was brilliant his entire life yeah up until the end Mm-hmm. Sean, were you how familiar were you with Jesse Winchester prior to this? Um, I had listened to this record before, not enough to like really absorb it. He's a guy that I knew I liked and wanted to listen to more, and now here we are. Yeah, this is the first one of his that I've actually owned. I I got it a while back when I was placing a Discogs order, and I think I needed to like spend another dollar or two to fulfill the seller's obligations. And it was like a dollar or two <laughs> that, that, that this was listed for. So I was like, Oh yeah, Jesse Winchester. You know, I've, I've heard that he's a great songwriter that never quite got his due, at least, you know, in the, in the public's eye, you know, a lot, he's a musician's musician that a lot of songwriters know and cover, but the general public, he was never like headed, had hits on his own. So I, I ordered it. And I had listened to it a couple times, and then we were just kind of talking about what we wanted to do, and I was like, oh, I should learn more about Jesse Winchester. And revisiting it, I remembered the songs, but they just grew more and more on me in, you know, mm-hmm. in prepping for this episode. I was just like, this is... I, I at one point, almost started to tear up at a, <laughs> listening to a couple of these songs. I was just very impressed with his not just how good of a songwriter he is but the range of his songwriting he goes in a lot of different directions yeah Mm -hmm. and that's cool that you uh, mentioned the jonathan edwards covering him because i didn't realize he did those covers but while i was listening to this record and some other jesse winchester stuff i kept thinking of jonathan edwards i feel like they were definitely kindred spirits in a lot of ways musically and you know, stylistically and just their kind of approach to music. They both have very, uh, very soulful edges to this kind of country folk roots music. Yes, very much so. And we'll get into a little bit of that with uh, Jesse's music. And if you guys are ready, I'm kind of ready to dive into some bio here. Do it. I I just wanted to throw out, I also thought of Jonathan Edwards, but as kind of a mirrored version of Jesse where Jonathan Edwards was a folky who tried to become more country. And I feel like Jesse was sort of the opposite. Like he was a country dude who kind of got folkier. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
I, I, there's like very few songs on here that go full country, but the more country he gets, I get a lot of uh, like Waylon Jennings in his vocals occasionally. He just has like those small country moments that color all this variety of music that he does. Very cool observations. And yeah, we'll uh, we'll talk a little bit about yeah kind of how he feels about uh, how he's viewed as we go along here. He was born at Barksdale Army Airfield where his father was stationed near Bossier City in Shreveport, Louisiana, on May 17th, 1944. He shares birthdays with other musicians, such as Trent Reznor, Enya, and Andrea Kaur from The Coors. Classic Peter. <laughs> well, I, I had those in case you got in one of you, like, interjected asking... Uh, Oh, you came prepared. <laughs> Who would do such a thing? Who would do such a thing? I ask you. <laughs> also born on the day, Bob Saget and the comedian who recently passed away and the deceased actor Bill Paxton. But I digress. <laughs> so Jesse Winchester was raised in northern Mississippi. His family later relocated to Memphis, Tennessee, they were a military family, but Jesse, early on, identified as a pacifist. He studied piano for 10 years, and he played the organ in church. And he was smitten by the rampant R&B of Memphis. And at age 14, he got his first guitar and started playing in bands while he was in high school. His first band, his high school band, was the Church Keys. He attended college at Williams College in Massachusetts. And he performed in Germany during a study abroad with a band called The Night Sounds. He returned to Massachusetts and graduated college in 1966. The following year, he received his draft notice. And instead of showing up, he relocated to Montreal, Quebec. Draft Dodger. Yep. That's a big part of his story. <laughs> and would shape the rest of his life and career. I probably would have done that too. Yeah. <laughs> Hard to blame him. Also interesting what you said about being into the Memphis soul of the day growing up, because a lot of that Memphis soul is very directly linked to country music. You know, Stax records itself began as a country label before shifting to soul music. And I always felt that part of the uniqueness of that Southern soul scene, especially around Memphis was the, the mixture of country and folk and modern soul and R&B stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to catch some some flack from our fans, I know, for equating his Memphis upbringings to Nashville hot <laughs> foods. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, Memphis and Nashville. Very... Same difference. <laughs> yeah, people from Tennessee will come after you. I'm too soft for death threats, people. Please be kind. <laughs> so upon arrival in Montreal, uh, Jesse had only $300 to his name and no connections, but he soon joined a local band called the Astronauts. He toured with them across Quebec, but wasn't really making much money, and he quit when they decided to start wearing astronaut suits on stage. I don't, I don't think... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jesse doesn't strike me as the kind of person who would be into artifice and 
and stuff Shtick. like that. Yeah. Shtick. I think he was sitting on a stool in just about every piece of live footage that I could find of him. So yeah. it doesn't really seem like the most flamboyant entertainer. <laughs> not, not at all. So now solo, he began writing songs, which he performed in coffee houses throughout Eastern Canada. And in 1970, he caught the attention of one Robbie Robertson from the band the band recently discussed on our neil diamond episode because mm-hmm. he produced that album uh so robbie robertson hooked jesse up with the band's manager albert grossman do we know what other major artist albert grossman was the manager of he's a bobby d guy right yeah bob dylan's manager and robbie produced jesse winchester's eponymous debut self-titled that album contains some of Jesse's best-known songs, including Yankee Lady, Biloxi, and the brand-new Tennessee Waltz, which was actually the first song he ever wrote. Uh, that song, the brand-new Tennessee Waltz, has been covered by a wide variety of artists, including Matthews Southern Comfort, Ian Matthews, who we previously featured nice. on another episode, uh, Joan Baez, the Everly Brothers, Ronnie Hawkins, who, that's another connection to the band, right? Mm -hmm. Because they were the Hawks. They were his backing band before joining up with Bob Dylan. Yep. Uh, The Walker Brothers, Scott Walker's band. Ralph Stanley, Don Henley from the Eagles. Patty Page, who had a massive hit in the year 1950 with the song Tennessee Waltz, which was the reference point for Jesse Winchester's song. Uh, what is that? What's the word for when you base a song on another song, Jeremy? I mean, I think the one you're thinking of is contrafact, but yeah, that's not I, quite what this is. I don't is. think that's what this is. Contrafact is when you you take the chords of a song and put a different melody and words over the top. This is more like a response song in this case, or yeah. or yeah, I guess kind of an homage, but not really. Yeah, and extremely bold for your first song to be like, <laughs> I'm going to make a new version of a country standard that everybody knows. Yeah. It seems like a good place to start. True. Yeah, I guess uh, there was a songwriter's table that he was sitting in, in on. Jesse Winchester was uh, in on with Elvis Costello a number of years ago. And Jesse casually brought up that that was the first song he ever wrote. And then Elvis Costello was like, wait, that was your first song? (laughs) Like the brand new Tennessee (laughs) Waltz, this widely recorded, (laughs) respected song. (laughs) Funny enough, Jesse did another version of the brand new Tennessee Waltz on this album, a re-recording of that song. And that is the song I would like to feature next. Side B, track six. But you have a pretty face You fave a girl that I knew I imagine she's back in Tennessee And by God, I should be there too I've a sadness too sad to be true But I left Tennessee in a hurry, dear in the same way that I'm leaving you Because love is mainly just memories, you see And 
everyone has got him a few So when I'm gone, I'll be glad to love you At the brand new Tennessee walls You literally walls and all air At the brand new Tennessee walls There's no telling who will be there When I leave, it will be like I found you, love Descending Victorian stairs And I'm feeling like one of your old photographs, girl I've been trapped while I was putting on airs And I get even by saying, well, who cares? At the brand new Tennessee walls You literally was an old air At the brand new Tennessee walls There's no telling who will be there So there it is, the brand new Tennessee Waltz, the first song written by Jesse Winchester, featured on his debut album and this, his fourth album. I couldn't figure out exactly why he chose to re-record it, but it seems in the 70s that happened every so often. The Buzzy Linhart record we did, he had done Friends again on that one and it, for some reason. Yeah, it's free money. Why not? <laughs> I already know it sells. Sell it again. Yeah. So yeah, from Jesse Winchester's first album, right right out the gate, he was popular with other recording artists, many of whom covered his songs. You know, we talked about a number of people who had recorded that song. Uh, but to get another list right out, <laughs> here's just a few artists who other artists who've recorded songs of his. Can Amy, I start the list? Yeah. Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> you are correct. They Thank were Thank you. They were good friends. Oh yeah. Emmy Lou Harris. The aforementioned Elvis Costello, Jerry Garcia, Wilson Pickett, Anne Murray, Winona Judd, Bonnie Raitt, George Strait, Tim Harden, Reba McIntyre, Michael Martin Murphy, and uh, Gary Allen and Willie Nelson did a song of his together. Just a few. A lot of those were country names right there. Oh, yeah. So I think that's why he's strongly associated with the country world. Now, unfortunately, despite his popularity with other songwriters, he could not tour the United States to promote his early albums because of his draft evader status. And he said that people would often say to him that coming to Canada must have been a hard decision. And he actually, he thinks that was the easy part. It was later trying to live his life and grow his career that had made that decision you know, that that decision complicated things. And he officially became a Canadian citizen in 1973. He continued to steadily release albums throughout the 70s. His second album was produced by Todd Rundgren, another artist we fairly recently talked about. And Todd Rundgren was on Jesse's manager, Albert Grossman's label, which was the Bearsville label. 
Uh, but Jesse was actually unhappy with the results and scrapped most of that in favor of a stripped down acoustic album. I believe only three of the Todd Rundgren produced songs ended up on that second album of his. He released his third album in 1974. And as mentioned, this was his fourth album in 1976, Let the Rough Side Drag. This was produced by Jesse, along with his bassist, Marty Harris, and the engineer, Chuck Gray. They recorded it at Studio 6 in Montreal. And the following year, 1977, Jesse was pardoned by President Jimmy Carter and was finally able to tour the United States. His first show in the U.S. was a sold-out performance in Burlington, Vermont. Do you guys know the significance of Burlington, Vermont? It's like Bernie Sanders land, isn't it? That's true. Is there more about Burlington, Vermont? Sean, do you know? That's also where Ben and Jerry's is headquartered, right? That's also true. Is that where Fish started? That's also where Fish started. That's very true. <laughs> it's also former former home of Peter Cook. <laughs> that is correct. That's where I was born. Oh, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Bernie Sanders was the mayor of my city when I was a little kid. Yeah. Wow. He, was, he was old back then. <laughs> true. I can, I can see all these influences converged into you, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Something in the water out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, some some Ben and Jerry's in the water out there. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, yeah, Jesse Winchester, you know, he he continued recording. There were some breaks here and there. Grossman eventually fell out of the picture because I think he kind of fell out of the music business in general. And I think Jesse had felt, you know, he's the type of person that isn't going to like straight up shit talk someone. But I think that he felt like his uh, career was a bit micromanaged by Grossman and you know he, but he continued to work as you know Sean said he was making music up until his death 8 years ago right up till the very end um in 2002 uh Jesse did move back to the United States he and his second wife Cindy moved to Memphis before settling in Charlottesville Virginia uh, previously, I, I don't think I mentioned it, but uh, Jesse's first wife was uh, Leslie, and I believe they divorced sometime in the late 80s. Unfortunately, Jesse was diagnosed with esophagus cancer in 2011. He underwent treatment and was given a clean bill of health. He recorded an album of new material called A Reasonable Amount of Trouble, and sadly, he would not live to see its release as he was then diagnosed with bladder cancer and passed away in April 2014, a few weeks shy of his 70th birthday. Uh, that final album that you said you checked that one out, Sean. Yeah, highly recommended. It was, yeah, it was released the following September and it had liner notes from Jimmy Buffett. There you go. Yeah, his, his good friend Jimmy Buffett. And uh, just a couple years before that, Jimmy Buffett had organized a tribute album to Jesse Winchester. It featured James Taylor, Roseanne Cash. Lyle Lovett, Lucinda Williams, and others covering his material. So there's more names of artists you know who have recorded Jesse Winchester songs. Yeah, I love Lucinda Williams. Fantastic. Uh, Jesse Winchester, the more you, the more that I read about him, the more I read interviews, he was a very interesting uh, character. You, you, could, you get that in his songs that there's this, he's not afraid of conflicting 
outlooks, emotions, ideas. Duet. He likes duality. And I think that he was fine with his status overall. I think he did want to make popular music. I don't think that he necessarily sought fame, though. He told Rolling Stone in 1970, I didn't want to get into this business of trying to be the top shit or something like that. I'd rather just hang in there all the time with good music, slow and steady, and share it, rather than set the world on fire all at once. And aside from the obvious folk and country influences on his songwriting, there could be a strong spiritual undercurrent to his music with deep roots in R&B and soul. No surprise, being that he spent his uh, teens in Memphis. Formative years, yeah. Yeah, Memphis, Tennessee. And he, he said he grew up listening to the Drifters and doo-wop. He wasn't as into the topical singer-songwriter folk, which he tends to get lumped in with. He said, I write a weird kind of gospel music sung by someone who's got one foot in heaven and the other foot he just can't seem to pull out of the muck sometimes. I can't be absolutely positive about things. I'm not sure I'd want to be. It's your mistakes and weaknesses that lead you to these revelations, not necessarily your strengths. And he also said that he doesn't like intolerance and Christianity has grown past whatever Jesus might have intended. The message was love. The message was to love one another. And that's pretty much it. On the days I do believe in God, he's a forgiving father who ultimately understands and loves us if he exists. That's another quote from Jesse. So some heavy thoughts yeah, from old Jesse. And you can hear some of that in the next song I'd like to feature, which is Step by Step, Side A, Track 3. And this is a different flavor than the previous songs we've heard. Step by step, all the happy saints go marching in. If a saint step out of line, you have to start again. Jacob's golden ladder gets slippery at the top And many a happy-go-lucky saint has made that long, long drop If I'm late, don't wait Children play all around the throne, innocent of sin. 
A trillion voices sing the name the mortal may not know. In heaven's walls too high to hear the trouble down below. If I'm late, don't wait. I think that song is a perfect example of the soul influence going on. Those horn sections could have been lifted right off a stack song from the 60s. But at the same time, perfectly fitting in that blues harmonica and like a little bit of country twang. And it all just mixes together in this beautiful roots rock stew. Do you know who that was on the harmonica? Uh, No. Paul Butterfield. Oh, makes a lot of sense easily the biggest name of the players on this record (laughs) as far as the yeah who else is on this record which i will talk about in a moment but i would be remiss if i did not mention that that song was used in the season one finale of the hbo crime drama the The wire Wire. (laughs) and so if you go on spotify that's like one of the top jesse winchester songs has like over two million listens and i was like why why that one (laughs) and looked into it ah that's why the influence the power of the wire yeah that song fits like perfectly in with their whole soundtrack through that whole series i really i've seen like one episode of the wire i really need to it's pretty good yeah considered you know one of the best tv shows ever made so (laughs) yeah i want to you know, work it into your watching of obscure 1980s <laughs> sci-fi westerns or whatever it is you watch. You just named things I don't watch, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you don't even know them at all. <laughs> yeah, well. Well, unless, you know, of course, we're, we're talking about Westworld. And I don't mean the show. I mean the old movie. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> yes, so... The players on this, I guess the backing band were called Midnight Bus, which was the name of a song on his second album. On guitar, we have Bob Cohen. Now, I'll say, I aside from being his backing band and being kind of musicians in the, you know, like Canadian, the scene, I couldn't really find a whole lot of information on a lot of these players. But we have Bob Cohen on guitar. We have Marty Harris on bass and backing vocals. I mentioned he also helped co-produce the record. We have Dan Habib, also credited on bass. He is a highly respected bass player in the Montreal and Canadian jazz world. Ron, Dan, and Bob Lucifer are credited as the pedal steel players. The drummers are listed as Chris Castle and Christian St. Rock, St. Roach, I'm not exactly sure. On keyboards, we have Maurice Beauchamp. On piano, we have Ken Pearson. Now, he was from the Full Tilt Boogie Band. Does anyone know whose backing band that was? No. Nope. Janis Joplin's backing band. Oh, okay. After she left Big Brother and the Holding Company. Ken Pearson was also on Karen Dalton's In My Own Time. Oh, Oh, Yep, played the organ on there. I love that album to death. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that there's actually some there's some really great players on there too. Uh Amos Garrett, the famous guitarist, was on that album too. The wow. famous session guitarist. So that's just a few of the players. Uh as I said, Paul Butterfield was definitely for to my at least <laughs> in looking through it, the, the biggest name of any of the players. But now that we've talked about the players, 
Uh, Sean, how about you talk about some recommended similar albums? Absolutely. So uh, another one of the first guys that came to mind as a comparison is Jesse Colin Young from the Young Bloods, who went on to have a pretty cool solo career that also he did a great job of blending various genres together. Yeah. Um, he did a record in 74 called Light Shine that I think has a lot of similar tone to this one and highly recommend it if you're into this sound. Yeah, and I could be wrong, but I think he also recorded some Jesse Winchester songs. That would make a lot of sense. And then another album from 74 that blends the soul and country together really well is Leon Russell's Stop All That Jazz which actually features the Gap Band as some of the backing players, and they are also some of the people on the front cover of that album, something that not everyone knows. Mm. And then I got an obscure one for the last pick. A guy named Charlie Bleak did a record called Let Me In in 1976 that also has a strong country influence but goes a lot of different places and kind of a musician's musician that did a few important things but is not a household name and probably be doing an episode on that record eventually but charlie bleak let me in from 1976 not to be confused with let him in by billy paul yes <laughs> previously <laughs> featured on the podcast and also from right around that same time <laughs> well very cool yeah of course i would also say jonathan edwards sailboat where he covered three of the songs from this album and yeah i can't as far as i can tell you can't go wrong with jonathan edwards either no you really can't <laughs> Well, before we wrap things up here, I would like to do yet another installment of For the Record, where we set the record straight on misinformation stated in previous episodes of the podcast. And we are going to start with our New York Rock and Roll Ensemble episode. Oh, we got some... Well, I'll let you explain. Well, it was your, it was your episode. You led the charge on that. But yes... Uh, we had something very exciting happen. It was uh, Dorian Rudnitsky from the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble reached out to us via email. Uh, we just happened to drop our Gmail address, I'd buy that podcast at gmail.com, in that episode asking for if, if uh, anyone had information on some of the players from the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble that we couldn't find much about, please let us know. And one of the members of the band yeah, wow. <laughs> reached out to us. Uh, I'm just going to, we'll go through a few little pieces of information, corrections that we were given, updates. So the players from the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble that we couldn't find much information about were Cliff Nivison and Brian Corrigan. Well, apparently Cliff Nivison is now living in Florida and Brian Corrigan is living in Pennsylvania. And neither of them pursued wider, more visible goals after leaving New York Rock and Roll Ensemble. Cliff Nivison continues to play as a rhythm guitar player in many local Florida bands to this day. And Brian Corrigan moved into the Christian music scene and has been doing private recording work living a quiet, reclusive life by choice. So that is why, Jeremy, you were not able to find much information on either of them. And uh, it's really cool that we got got the answer. Yeah, I, I don't feel bad at all for missing that. <laughs> yeah. It was not true what we said about Cliff and Brian doing most of the singing. It was mostly 
Michael Kamen and Brian Corrigan, who were the two lead singers. Uh, but Cliff did do quite a bit as well. So, but it was, yeah, so I guess mainly uh, Michael and Brian were the lead vocalists. According to Dorian, they didn't really know Janice Ian prior to playing at Carnegie Hall with her. That connection came from Leonard Bernstein, who was mentoring Janice Ian at the time. The New York Rock and Roll Ensemble agreed to back her under the condition that they would be able to showcase themselves as well during that concert. And through that connection came their own performance on the Young People's Concert Series with the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. So those were some of the key points that Dorian reached out to us about. Thank you, Dorian, if you're hearing this, for reaching out. It's very cool to get feedback directly from one of the artists we featured. True. Moving along, on our Aretha Franklin episode, we stated that Bill Withers did not write just the two of us, that it was Ralph McDonald. Well, Ralph McDonald was one of the writers, but it was co-written by Withers and someone named William Salter. So there's that correction. On our Paul Horn episode, we stated that the flute did fall under the reed instrument category. That's not correct, but it is part of the Woodwinds family of musical instruments. That's what it was. And I'll say that was my own boo-boo. Yeah, I, I was mistaking. Yeah, it does fall under woodwinds, but obviously it's not a reed instrument because it does not have a reed. That's it as far as specific things from specific episodes that I wanted to touch on. However, there's something that I wanted to clear up. If anyone of you, any of you listeners out there have been yelling at us whenever we've been talking about records going gold and we've been wrong, there's something I learned that gold records didn't always mean what they mean now. Oh? Oh, interesting. So, background. The Gold Record Award was introduced in 1958 for records of any kind, albums or singles, which achieved $1 million in retail sales. So it was originally a status of having sold $1 million in retail. In 1976, the Platinum Record Certification was introduced for the sale of 1 million units for albums and 2 million for singles. The gold certification was then redefined to mean sales of 500,000 units for albums and 1 million for singles. And in the late 1980s, the certification thresholds for singles were dropped to match that of albums. So it has changed over time. So when we're talking about records from like the 60s and the early 70s going gold, that means that they sold one million dollars. Yeah, it's different criteria based on when it was yep. released. Yep. So we've probably stated that means this sold five hundred thousand copies. That wasn't the case. So, I, if just if anyone's, I wasn't aware of that until very recently. It was brought to my attention, and we know that moving forward. Yeah. And I don't think he corrected us on anything, but didn't the guy from New Shoes also send us an email saying that he heard it? Our guest, Ike Turner, had that correspondence yeah. and was very impressed with our episode. They, they really, you know, they, they, we didn't, I, I guess there were a couple factual things that uh, we got wrong, but no specifics were given to us. And they said overall they were very impressed that it was one of the best recountings of their career in 40 years. Wow. Gold stars to all of us. <laughs> yeah. And 
former guest Ike Turner for, you know, making that connection. I, he, he just went for broke and emailed them like, Hey, here's me talking about your band. <laughs> and, uh, no, and it was, it was great to hear that they were happy with that. It was, yeah. uh, it's cool. Yeah. These artists are hearing our episode. Yeah. May continue. Yeah. Maybe one day we'll have one on to talk with us. One day. <laughs> if you're an artist we've covered, reach out. We want to talk to you. Or or if you're a, an underappreciated artist from way back <laughs> who wants to be featured <laughs> and come on and talk to us, the offer's open. I'd buy that podcast at gmail.com. Wow, we're pitching over here. Yeah. It's about time to wrap it up, I <laughs> yeah, think. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> So the final selection that I'd like to feature from Jesse Winchester's Let the Rough Side Drag is Lay Down Your Burden. And this is an Eric Burden diss track, correct? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is We didn't get into the Eric Burden, uh, Jesse Winchester beef. <laughs> <laughs> now you're going to have to correct that on For the Record. There wasn't any beef. No, yeah, no, no, no beef. We don't want to start something here. This song was covered by, of all people, Amy Grant on her second album, which was released in 1979. That I had to like double check that it was the right Amy Grant. I didn't think she was old enough to release music that long ago. Yeah, <laughs> uh, wow. Because I, I associate her with the 90s. Yeah, like early 90s, maybe late 80s. Yeah. Uh, she was a teenager at the t- when she started recording. So she was born in 1960, so she would have been like 18 or 19 wow. at this at this time. It was also covered by Mary Black, an Irish folk singer. She covered that in 1993. Uh, funny enough, uh, my aunt Bernadette reached out to me uh, after our Dottie West episode and was just talking about some other singers she likes, and Mary Black was one of the names she mentioned. So I, I took note of that when I saw. That Mary Black covered this song. Also, it was covered in 2002 by Kevin Russell from the band The Gourds. Are either of you familiar with them? No. No. They are best known for doing a bluegrassy country cover of Gin and Juice by Snoop Dogg. Gross. And Snoop Dogg fucks with them, he said in an interview with Nardwar. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) It it was funny because that was for a long time in the Napster days. It was misattributed to fish. It was one of those deals. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, I've heard that song before when I was uh, living in the student housing area of Kalamazoo and one of my neighbors across the street moved in and set up every speaker they could possibly find on their front porch facing towards the road and then just started blasting that song at full volume on repeat. So... I've heard it enough. That's fine. I didn't want to hear it then. I don't ever want to hear it again. That sounds like the exact context I would expect to hear that (laughs) specific cover in. It's very much a college-y type of like, oh, man, they're doing Snoop Country style. Yeah, I think they were just like sitting on their front lawn in in lawn chairs looking real self-satisfied listening to that track. Well, so so apparently the the guy, the person who covered that song, fucks with Jeff, Jesse Winchester too, so, <laughs> and did a version of this song. Funny enough, so takes yeah, all types. It take, but it's just again like Jesse Winchester has just been covered by everyone. It's funny that on an on an episode where most of the session players, you know, I feel like in all these, we've had so many episodes in a row where like we got all these legendary big name session players on this album, whereas on this one. There weren't too many big names on it, but 
that you could easily say rather than me naming all the artists I've named who've covered Jesse Winchester, I could just say it's a good bet. Your favorite artist has covered Jesse Winchester, (laughs) but I did want to name a lot of them because it's just so impressive. So we hope we've done him some justice. Thank you so much for listening to I'd buy that for a dollar. My name is Peter cook. I'm Jeremy Ruggles and I'm Sean Hartman lay down your burden side a track four. It's a cold old world that we're walking through Lay down the burden of your heart But it's warm as toast walking two by two Lay down the burden of your heart Lay down the burden of your heart I know you'll never miss it Oh, show your daddy where it hurts And let your daddy kiss it It's a fine, fine line Betwixt love and hate It's tough to tell the two apart But you know it's love That I offer Lay down the burden of your heart Lay down the burden of your heart I know you'll never miss it Oh, show your daddy where it hurts And let